It is a wonderful, it's wonderful for me to be here with you today. I have, uh, I have heard of you much, and I want you to know that you are blessed to have one of the Lord's best as your pastor. I think you need to praise God for that. And, and you are blessed to have someone who carries you on his heart. That's important. That you have someone who carries you on his heart. Who desires the best of the Lord for you. And who wants offer the best that the Lord can work from him. That's a gift to you, and I think you need to praise God for such a gift. Now, um, North Carolina is also known for barbecue, so I needed to just see if y'all were all that. And... um, we went to Pappy's and we had salt and smoke. What was the place that we called that ran out of everything? Yeah, how you going to run out? I mean, it's 7 o'clock. You ought to have, you ought to have some stuff. So we're going to make our way and go again. And whatever I don't get now, I'll come back. I may not look like I can eat, but I can eat some food. Amen. Good to, good to see a good friend of mine, John Anazu. So glad to see him here. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles, or if you're going to read on the screen, the book of Jeremiah, chapter, chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, the word of the Lord is as follows. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anathoth, in the territory of Benjamin, The word of the Lord came to him in the thirteenth year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. The word of the Lord came to me before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Thus far, the word of the Lord. Will you look at somebody and say, I have a reason to live. I have a reason to live. There is a series on on Netflix that has taken the young and old by storm. It is entitled 13 Reasons Why. The series, which is produced by Selena Gomez, is an adaptation of a book bearing the same title that was written by Jay Asher in 2007. The storyline centers around the character of Hannah Baker, a teenager, who prior to committing suicide records seven double-sided cassettes which set forth 13 reasons for her choosing to end her life. 
Each tape is addressed to a person whose action or actions she cites as a reason for her choice. This this has achieved blockbuster status. I did not know about it until my wife and I received a note from our daughter's middle school to alert us to the fact that children have been watching this and the subject matter is such that we need to pay attention. It has a cult-like following. It's even going to have season two, which is going to be dropped <clears throat> soon. And, it's, and it has achieved this status because it strikes some nerves within our society. The predominant nerve that it strikes is the nerve of teen slash youth suicide. According to statistics provided by the Focus on the Family in 2016, suicide was the second leading cause of death among kids between the ages of 15 and 19. The average number of youth who commit suicide between the ages of 10 to 24 is 4,600 per year. On average, there are 12 teen suicides per day. There are 575,000 attempted teen suicides per year. And while 81% of suicide victims are males, girls attempt suicide three times as often than males. And one reason, as you're adding it up, the discrepancy, one reason for the discrepancy is that males are more likely to use firearms, whereas girls are more likely to use pills, overdose, or cutting. The top six reasons identified for teen suicide are depression, psychosis, impulse usually connected to intoxication, a cry for help, relief from pain due to terminal illness, and the last one, simply a mistake. With depression being the number one reason for teen suicide, only one in five get help for their depression. The young and the not-so-young fail to get the help that they need because we have stigmatized mental illness. And the church must be heard giving voice to removing the stigma around mental illness. That just as the body is corruptible, just as the body is subject to dis-ease, so is the mind subject to Disease that mental health and mental illness are not lesser or lower forms of health or well-being. It is worthy of the same attention, the same weight, the same consideration that we give to any other ailment. That God is equally concerned about the health and well-being of our minds as God is about the health and well-being of our bodies. The giving of attention to this matter of mental health is important because it is estimated that one in four persons 
will deal with depression. So if you just count off one, two, three, four, at least one out of every four will know depression at one point or another in one's life. And it will have nothing to do with how much Bible you know, how much salvation you have, how much oil you pour over your head. It will simply be due to the fact that you are human and that you are subject to such an experience. As a, as a youth, as a teenager, I wrestled with depression. It was during the same time that I was discerning my call into the ministry. With parents who were physicians, there were pills in our home that I could have used. God's mercy kept me from that. God kept me so that he could use me. He kept me alive so that I would be able to proclaim his word. And I thank him for that every day of my life. Suicide is the predominant nerve that this series raises up. But it unearths some powerful forces that are precipitants to attempted suicide, such as rape, sexual assault. It is estimated that 50% of young people who experience rape, physical or sexual abuse will attempt suicide. That 25% of high school girls have been abused physically or sexually. And that cutting and self-injury are another set of factors in, in it. And it is estimated that one in five females and one in seven males will engage in self-injury. And 70% of those who engage in self-injury attempt suicide at least one time. A third factor portrayed in the series is bullying and cyberbullying. It is reported that 40% of all teens have been cyberbullied at least one time. And that 21% are regularly bullied online. Now, I'm 53. We bullies have always been around. The difference is that for me, it ended after school ended. When I went home, I didn't have to deal with the bully. I would only have to deal with the bully when I would go back to school. Now, because I was always one of the smaller ones in class, I had to learn how to deal with bullies. I had a quick mind and a smart mouth. And so I could talk a bully into being just, I could cut you down to size. And that's how I dealt with bullying. I would cut them down to size, one. And then secondly, I would find the biggest person in the class who usually would need help in homework. (laughs) And I'd hook up with him, help him with his work. And he would have my back. That's how I dealt with 
the bullies. But, but that's physical. Cyberbullying, you can't escape that. If you have your device on, it, it, it goes outside of the classroom. It's, it's 24-7. And it's happening to young people who are at ages where they have not developed the maturity to be able to withstand it. One in teen, only one in ten teens admit to being bullied. And cyber bullying victims are two times more likely to attempt suicide. This book further examines the role of betrayal, humiliation, false rumors, abandonment, perceived insensitivity, and indifference. All of those, how they play a role in someone making a decision to end his or her life. With this being such a cultural phenomenon, and in light of the fact that season two is on the way, and if your child isn't watching it, they're hearing about it in school, the church has to provide a word. With a book and a television series graphically, and suddenly providing reasons why someone chooses to take her life. The church must be heard providing reasons for somebody to choose to live. The church must be heard saying to the young and the not so young that we may not choose the things that come at us, but we do choose how we respond to them. We may not control what people say about us, believe about us, feel about us, or even try to do to us, but we do control how we respond to what they say, how we respond to what they believe, how we respond to what they do, and how we respond to what they feel. There is a choice that each of us have the ability to make. You and I don't have to choose death. We can choose life. And that is what God is seeking to hardwire into Jeremiah in our text. God wants us to understand your life is by God's intention. God wanted you and God wants you to live. You are not here by accident. You are not here by happenstance. You are here by divine intention. The circumstances around your conception or even your birth may have been unplanned or even undesired by your parents, but God superintended their actions to bring you into this world. God wanted you and God wants you to live, and that's the message that God is giving in this text today. God is speaking to Jeremiah as a young person because Jeremiah is living in a rough time. Jeremiah is living in a time when God has already pronounced the impending judgment upon Judah. And therefore, it's an anxiety-filled time. It's a tension-laden time. So heavy a time is it going to be for Jeremiah that Jeremiah will be known as the weeping prophet. He's not known as the happy prophet. He's not known as the dancing or shouting or clapping or praising prophet. 
He is known as the weeping prophet. He's known as the lamenting prophet. Because God wants us to understand that a life with him is not all laughter and praise. It's not all shouting and dancing. There are times when you don't feel like shouting. You don't feel like dancing. You don't feel like clapping your hands. There are are times when if the praise team seeks uh, to invoke you and to encourage you to do something and you're saying, you do it because I'm just not feeling that today. It includes times of tears, times of sorrow. And God wants us to understand that a life with him is equally valid when I'm in that state as it is when I'm in the other state. That, 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 that honesty before God is worship unto God. It is saying, it is saying God, you are worthy of me not just when I lift my hands in hallelujah, but it's when I can't lift my hand and you're knowing how I'm feeling. Jeremiah, God speaks to this weeping prophet with a clear call. God says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you before you were born. I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah is growing up in a in an anxiety-filled context, and God says, I want to ground you in the fact that I have a claim concerning your life. Jeremiah is divinely claimed. God says, I want you to know early in your life because you will experience abandonment. You may experience misunderstanding. There will be false accusations. There will be mistreatment. And yes, you will know persecution, but I want you to be fixed in the knowledge that I have claimed your life, that when no one else will claim you, I claim you, that in the worst of what will happen to you, you'll have a reason to live because the God of earth and heaven claims your life, regardless of whatever exclusion you may experience by human beings, the God who is God will always say, you're mine. I was given a good example of this. It was the Olympics, I believe, of 2004, Ben Johnson, a Canadian sprinter, had set the world record, got a gold medal, and then he was tested afterwards. Upon being tested, a foreign substance was found, and he was stripped of the record. He was stripped of the gold medal. He was sent home in shame and embarrassment. His mother was being interviewed, and a person asked his mother, what do you have to say about your son, Ben? She said two words, he's mine. He's mine. He was mine before he ran one race. He was mine when he qualified for the Canadian team. He was mine when he ran the race and when they said he won it. He was mine when they tested him and found a foreign substance 
in his blood. He was mine when they stripped him of the record and took the gold medal. And when he gets back to where I am, he'll still be mine. That is the claim that God makes upon you and me. We are unconditionally and everlastingly claimed by Almighty God. And when no one else will claim you, you still have a reason to live because God says, I will never deny my claim on you. I will always assert my claim on you because my wanting you and my intending you, guess what, preceded you. God's desires and God's intentions precede us because they reside with God as eternal desires and intentions. For as long as God has been God, God has had his desires and his intentions. Before the hills in order stood, or the earth received her frame, when it was just God all by himself, God had God's desires and God's intentions. And because God was God before God made anything, his intentions preceded anything that was made. As a matter of fact, when you read Genesis 1, you understand that it gives the account of God verbalizing his desires. But before he verbalized them, he already had them. And that's why God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. God speaks of knowing Jeremiah before making Jeremiah. God intended and determined Jeremiah before God designed Jeremiah. God's warning us and intending us precedes us and predates anything that is connected to us before there was a womb to conceive you and carry you and before there was a womb to conceive the womb that would conceive and carry you. God knew you fully and completely. God comprehended you. God fathomed you before God formed you. God made sense of you before God made you. God recognized you before God realized you. God figured you out before God filled you out. You are not the product of temporal activity. You are the product of eternal intentionality. You were eternally intended. And God's internal intention demanded that you live in time, which means that there's nothing that happens in time that changes God's intention. God's wanting you and God's intending you informs you. Look again. God says, before I formed you, I knew you. Now that's also God saying, because I knew you, I formed you. God's knowing Jeremiah, God's understanding Jeremiah, God's determining Jeremiah, God's figuring out Jeremiah in eternity informed God's filling out Jeremiah in time. What God framed and devised in God's mind 
informed what God fashioned in the womb. What God framed and devised concerning Jeremiah informed the existence of the line through whom Jeremiah would come. It wasn't just his mama's womb. It was his mama's mama's womb. It wasn't just his father's seed. It was his grandfather's seed. It was God's action in every generation that preceded Jeremiah to get Jeremiah into this world. With Jeremiah's father's seed and Jeremiah's mother's womb, God, knowing what God knew, God empowered them both to bring him into the world. Everybody under the sound of my voice, you have a reason to live because God's wanting you. God's intending you has informed who you are. In Psalm 139, the psalmist reflects upon this. Listen to him. Oh, yes, you shape me first inside, then out. You formed me in my mother's womb. You knew me inside and out. You know every bone in my body. You know exactly how I was made, bit by bit, how I was sculpted from nothing into something. Like an open book, you watched me grow from conception to birth. All the stages of my life were spread out before you. The days of my life all prepared before I'd even lived one day. God's intention in eternity informs God's actions in time. His intention in eternity informed his making you in time. You didn't choose your birth family. There wasn't some prenatal cue where you could pick and choose to whom and through whom you would be born. That was set by Almighty God. It informed the gender and race into which you were born. It informed the features of your frame. It informed the talent and abilities that you would inherit. The you in the womb was informed by the you in the mind of God. You got a reason to live because the you that you are is informed by God. The curliness or straightness of your hair, the broadness or slimness of your nose, the thickness or thinness of your lips, the lightness or darkness of your skin, the largeness or smallness of your frame, the tallness or shortness of your stature, all of that is within the created intention of God. As much as I might have wanted to be six foot five, 250, the intention of God was that I would be six feet and 160. That's the intention of God. But I got to be able to like that and say, whoever doesn't like the created intention of God, that's not my problem. That's there problem because this is who God has intended for me to be you have a reason to live when you think about everything that God had to do to get you into this world how many of you have crazy in your family line raise your hand all of us have crazy in the family line 
Crazy, 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 crazy. But look at how, look at how God overcame the crazy. Did not allow the crazy to kill off the family before you got here. Right? Because God wanted you here. God has a purpose for your life. And that's why God doesn't, God doesn't let your crazy stop what God wants to do. Because God has a purpose. God wants you. God intends you. God's wanting and intending you preceded your being. And guess what? It informs your being. But then God's wanting you and intending you orders your being. God continues his claim on Jeremiah with the words, before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. God speaks of Jeremiah's life being ordered. Now, Jeremiah is going to grow up and live in a chaotic time. But God says, in the midst of chaos, I've ordered your life. That is to say, the turbulence of your life does not mean that I don't have order to your life. And God speaks of order in Jeremiah's life in two different ways. God, first of all, says, I set you apart. God says, I determined you to be holy. I set you apart for sacred usage. Jeremiah's life is lifted from the level of the common and the profane. From the womb, Jeremiah is sacred and holy. He has divine value. From the womb, Jeremiah possesses noble and virtuous intent. From the womb, Jeremiah is endowed with honor and dignity. From the womb, Jeremiah was declared extraordinary and not run of the mill. God wants this to be hardwired into Jeremiah's heart and mind because there are going to be times when words and actions of people will make him feel bad. And Jeremiah needs to know that from the womb, he has divine rhyme and reason. That God's determination of him was higher and deeper than people's decisions about him. Every person needs to know that from the womb you have divine and sacred value. From the womb God speaks sacred distinction. From the womb you were made a little lower than the angels and crowned with glory and with honor. From the womb, God says that there is an uncommon usage that God has in mind for you. The God who from the womb declared you, created you, says that you are special, is the God who wants you to know that anything that happens outside of the womb does not diminish how valuable and important you are. You've got to be able to tell yourself, I'm set apart for something special. I'm set apart for something meaningful. I'm set apart for something valuable. And it does not matter what happens 
outside of me. I know who I am on the inside. I am special. I have value. I am uncommon. And therefore, because I know who I am, therefore I am able to say to anybody, if you're going to step up to me, you got to step up to me right and recognize who I am because I know who I am. There's another way in which God orders Jeremiah's being. It's this word appointed. God speaks of assigning Jeremiah's life. God has a place for Jeremiah. God has direction and God has determined ends for Jeremiah. In other words, God wants Jeremiah to understand you weren't designed for aimlessness. You're designed for purpose. He would tell Jeremiah later, I know the plans that I have for you. Plans of good and not of evil. Plans of a future and an intended end. God's wanting and intending Jeremiah provided order for Jeremiah. There was an appointment for his life. And there were appointments to his life. God has an appointment for your life. And God has appointments to your life. There is an appointment that God has for you. There's an assignment that is uniquely yours. There is a role that is uniquely for you to play. There is a space that only you can fulfill. There are people that only you can reach. And I know for somebody... That's hard for you to grasp right now because you're looking at life and life is a little hazy for you right now. And one reason may be because God is working in a place where you have yet to arrive with people whom you have yet to meet and he has a role that you have yet to play. And now all that you got to do is, is read the Bible and you'll find that to be true in the book of Esther in chapter 1. Esther is not even mentioned in chapter 1 because there is a, a role for her to play. There is a vacancy for her to feel, fulfill and there are people for her to meet. But God is working that out for her before she ever gets there to be it, gets there to know it, and gets there there to meet them. When you understand that God has an appointment for your life and God has appointments to your life, when things are not happening for you right now, you are able to assert it's because I have yet to arrive in the space that God has for me, fulfilling the role that God has designed for me and being with the people to whom God has assigned for my life. But right where you are, you got to be able to say there is an appointment for me and that there is an appointment to me. Jeremiah can testify, I discovered that God had appointments beyond my mistreatment and beyond the false accusations and beyond the abandonment. God had appointments and God was able to work that thing out so well that when my own people confined me, put me in jail, God then brought Nebuchadnezzar, the, the enemy of my people, God sent him to free me, to take care 
care of me and to create liberty on my behalf. When God has an assignment for you, God can even work with those that you would expect to harm you. And God says, no, because I've made an appointment for them with you. They're going to help you rather than harm you. That is the God that we serve. There is an appointment for you. There are appointments to you. And you need to be able to encourage yourself and say, I want to live to see every appointment God has for me. I don't want to end my life before I see all the appointments that God has made for my life. Regardless of how dark life may get, regardless of how thin my company may get, I'm going to make up in my mind I want to see every appointment that God has made for me. I want to make the resolution that the psalmist had when the psalmist said, I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I'm going to wait on the Lord, I'm going to be of good courage and I'm going to know that God will strengthen my heart because I have an appointment to see the goodness of the Lord. I have an appointment to see the power of the Lord. I have an appointment to see the favor of the Lord. I have an appointment to see the victory of the Lord. I have an appointment to see the glory of the Lord. I have an appointment to see the the deliverance of the Lord. I have an appointment to see the healing of the Lord. I have an appointment to see the joy of the Lord. I have an appointment to see the lifting of the Lord and I may be weeping right now but I know that joy is going to come in the morning I may be weak right now but I know that if I wait on him he'll renew my strength he'll cause me to mount up with wings as eagles and run and not get weary and walk and not faint I have an appointment with God and therefore I will say I will not die but I will live and I will declare the very glory of God I have an appointment with God and God is on my side and God wants me not just in time but God wants me in eternity you want to know how much God wanted you God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but has everlasting life God wanted you so much that God sent his son to die on a cross to be buried in a grave and then God raised him from the dead and he's alive forevermore God's wanting you so much that God overcame every objection and he has overcome every obstacle for you to be alive today that's how much God wants you. I want every head bowed. I, I, this service, I'm coming for one person. I don't know who that one person is. But as I've, as I was speaking, You know I've been speaking just to you. And if that's you, while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, will you just raise your hand? 
Hallelujah. The God who is God knew you'd be coming to church. Because he knew he wanted to meet you here. And he was sent a preacher from Charlotte, North Carolina, by way of Washington, D.C., to speak this word to you. Because he wants you to know you have a reason to live. He wants you to know how important you are to him. He wants you to know. He still has appointments that he's assigned to your life. And he has an overall appointment for you. That, 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 that your story is bigger than the chapter you're in right now. And that the joy outweighs the tears. Father, right now, in the name of Jesus, I want to thank you for those hands that were raised. God, I want to thank you for speaking to them in a clear voice. God, I want to thank you for the assurance that you've given. I want to thank you, God, for the clarity you've provided. I want to thank you, God, for the lifting that you've worked. I want to thank you right now for the fact they know you, the eternal God, claim them, own them, have a perfect plan for their lives that you worked in eternity and now you're working it out in time. God, I pray right now. I pray for a restoration of joy. I'm praying for an establishment of peace. I'm praying, God, for the establishment of a confidence and a boldness in you. I'm praying, God, for a passion. I'm praying, God, for a fire. I'm praying, God, for a smile. I'm praying, God, for a countenance. I'm praying, God, for a confidence. Even right now. God, I'm praying not just for them, but there were others who did not lift up their hands but you spoke to them too and so God for the fact that we all have reasons to live thank you right now that for somebody you have told them in their spirit the worst is behind them and the best is yet to come oh God I thank you right now you've let them know they will see your goodness in the land of the living And now you are strengthening their hearts and they are being of good courage. Oh God, we take this time now and we all lift up our hands before you in worship and adoration, in praise and thanksgiving because you are our God. You are our King. You are our Lord. You are our Sovereign. You are the one who loves us the most and who has the best for us Oh, God, we do bless you. We do worship you. And we do adore you. We give you praise. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Come on, put those hands together. Bless the name of God. Come on, bless the name of the Lord. 